Hope you like that video because you're going to be seeing it for the next eight months. Um, my name is Jamie. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, if we have not met, excited to have you here with us this morning. Thanks for bringing the church into this building this morning. As Jason mentioned, uh, this morning we do begin a new series that's going to carry us all the way up to Easter Sunday, a series entitled Jesus is Better, a study of the book of Hebrews. Um, just for what it's worth, I've been chomping at the bit for about three years to preach through this book of the Bible. If you can have a favorite book of the Bible, if that's allowed, this one would be up there near the top of the list for me. As a guy who um, appreciates a good literary masterpiece, not only uh, is the book of Hebrews a beautiful literary work on its own, um, but it also helps us to see how the Bible in its fullness is a literary masterpiece, how everything is weaved together to tell one overarching story of redemption. I had the privilege of, of teaching through this book of the Bible the past two years for an organization called the Downline Institute, and then I had the privilege of, of recently engaging in some coursework in this particular book of the Bible, and so I feel like I've been breathing the air of Hebrews for, for quite some time. Um, th this book is it's filled with both visible and buried treasure, you could say, and it, and it all points to the, the most supremely valuable treasure in all of the universe, Jesus Christ. Um, it, it's going to be a lot of fun. Before we dive in, let, let's do this. Um, just a few preliminary things to address when diving into any, uh, any given book of the Bible. Because the Bible so oftentimes gets taken out of, out of context, we tend to grab hold of verses, slap them on bumper stickers, coffee mugs. Um, we, we don't want to ignore context around here. When it comes to the Bible, every word is written in the context of a sentence. Every sentence is written in the context of a paragraph. Every paragraph is written in the context of a chapter, and so forth and so on. So I want to begin this morning, before we even jump into uh, the first passage to, to set the stage for this series, uh, I want to begin by providing us with a little bit of context. But here's the funny thing about the book of Hebrews. There are a number of contextual unknowns. Uh, it's an enigma in terms of human authorship. Some have argued that the Apostle Paul is responsible for this book of the Bible. Um, we know that the author certainly has a, a close relationship with Timothy, according to chapter 13, verse 23. Uh, we know that there's a focus on the new covenant, which Paul's known to focus on. Um, we know that in the earliest New Testament manuscripts we found, the book of Hebrews uh, is, is right after the book of Romans in, in those earliest manuscripts, and Paul wrote Romans. But a number of scholars in recent history have rejected Pauline authorship on the basis of a few things. One, Paul normally states his name and declares his apostolic authority at the beginning of his letters. You usually see Paul's letters start off, start off with something like, the apost uh, uh, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, called to be, and, and uh, something of, of that sort of wording is usually how you encounter the beginning of Paul's letters, but that's not the case with the book of Hebrews the language and, and literary style is different from Paul's. There are uh, roughly 150 words in the book of Hebrews not found elsewhere in the New Testament, much of which the Apostle Paul wrote. Um, Paul never talks about Jesus as a priest, which is a major focus of the book of Hebrews. And so some believe the author was, was Luke. Others believe the author was Barnabas. Some believe Clement of Rome, one of the first century bishops in the city of Rome. Uh, some believe Apollos. Some even believe Priscilla and Aquila wrote this book of the Bible. What can we conclude about the authorship of the book of Hebrews? Answer, it's probably not best to jump to any hard and fast conclusions. If you're a black and white person, this is going to drive you nuts, okay, the next few minutes of this series. Um, Origen, one of the early church fathers, said this. He said, but who wrote the epistle? In truth, only God knows. What about the date? 
The date and origin of the book of Hebrews is also inconclusive. Most argue that um, the book was definitely written in the first century based on the fact that it was quoted by Clement of Rome, who was a first century bishop. In fact, uh, Clement of Rome said this, and you'll notice this when we get into this morning's passage. Uh, He quoted, uh, quote, he being the radiance of his majesty is as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent. When we dive into verses 3 and 4 of chapter 1 this morning, you'll see almost verbatim those words. More specifically, uh, many believe that the book was written before 70 AD, which is when the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed. The fact that, that the recipients of this letter were tempted to put their hope in animal sacrifices and other temple practices would only make sense if this letter were written prior to the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. Otherwise, where are you going to make those sacrifices? Also, if the letter was written after the destruction of the temple, it's odd that the author doesn't include that fact in his argument that sacrifices are no longer needed. He could just point to the destroyed temple and say, see guys, we don't have to make these sacrifices anymore because of Jesus. And so some narrow the date down even further to sometime between 65 and 70 AD, but but the more you narrow the window, the more nuanced the arguments get. What, What can we conclude about the date and origin of this particular book of the Bible? Answer, it's hard to say for sure, being that we don't know uh, particularly and specifically who wrote the book of Hebrews. But the letter was definitely written in the first century and most likely a few years prior to 70 AD. What about the audience? Surely we know who the audience was, right? Would you believe that even the audience of the book of Hebrews is inconclusive? Some believe it was a Roman audience. Again, Clement of Rome uh, both had access to and quoted this letter. There's also this statement in the letter itself, if you fast forward to the very end, chapter 13, verse 24, that says, those who come from Italy send you greetings, which would be a little strange to say, hey, my Italian buddies want to say hey to you if it wasn't being sent to somewhere in Italy. As far as ethnic background goes, some believe the letter was written to a a Gentile audience. Um, If the original audience was in Rome, we're talking about a large Gentile population. Also, Uh, Every Old Testament quotation in the book of Hebrews is the Greek version of the Old Testament that's being quoted, not the Hebrew version. And then lastly, the danger of falling away from the living God, which is the language that's used in chapter 3, wouldn't make quite as much sense for a Jewish person. For a Jew to lapse out of Christianity into Judaism wouldn't be to fall away from God because you're still worshiping Yahweh in the mind of a Jew. However... Others believe the audience was most likely of a Jewish background because you just look at the the vast number of Old Testament references. Why would you refer to the Old Testament so often, so many times, if you're not speaking to a Jewish crowd? Also, the strong emphasis on not going back to the Old Covenant, the priesthood, and the sacrificial system would only make sense for those of a Jewish background, arguably. And so, what can we conclude about the audience? Answer, about the best we can do is to say that this letter is written primarily to a group of professing Christians with an Old Testament understanding. A group of people who are declaring, yes, Jesus is the Messiah, but they're being pressured from the outside to abandon Christianity, to revert back to the law, back to the priesthood, back to the sacrificial system, back to the temple, back to the old covenant. This letter is is meant to be a word of exhortation. The the author of Hebrews is saying, don't look back. Redemptive history, it's moving forward, not backward. Jesus is better. You're gonna hear that over and over again in this series. Jesus is better. Jesus is greater. Here's the good news. 
The fact that we don't know for certain the author, the date, or the audience, which is kind of crazy. It's really the only book of the New Testament that we can say that about. Number one, it doesn't threaten the canonicity of the book, meaning whether it should be included in the Bible or not. For one, the book has a direct link to the apostles. We'll see that when we get into chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. Also, the content of the book, it's in unity with the rest of Scripture. The book makes much of Jesus, and the book has been widely accepted by the church as part of the canon in Scripture from its very beginnings. Also, the fact that we don't know for certain the author, the date, or the audience doesn't prevent us from reaching definite doctrinal conclusions or understanding the purpose of its teaching. The author of Hebrews himself says this in chapter 13, verse 22. It's up on the screen. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. The book of Hebrews is a word of exhortation. It's a warning. It's an appeal, which is why you have the phrase bear with. Warnings punctuate the entire book of Hebrews. They shape the doctrinal teaching of the book itself. Apostasy is a real threat. Apostasy meaning to renounce one's Christian faith in rejection of the person and work of Jesus. And so you have phrases like this in the book of Hebrews, chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. Chapter 3, verse 6. And we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Chapter 3, verse 12. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Chapter 4, verse 1, therefore, while the promises of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. These are, these are just some of the warnings found in the book of Hebrews. And, and, and this is critical. Uh, these warnings are not just for those within the Christian population who are not really followers of Jesus. These warnings are also God's grace in helping Christ followers persevere in the faith. And so if you're a Christian, every one of these warnings we're, we're going to encounter in the book of Hebrews is for you. And so I just want to be crystal clear that we're not talking about a book that declares the supremacy of Jesus Christ, which just happens to have some warnings sprinkled in along the way. The warnings are at the very heart of the book, as we'll see, meant to spur us to keep fixing our eyes on Jesus. You can think of it this way if you're a word picture type of person. If you think of Israel in the Old Testament, Israel was brought out of Egypt and baptized into Moses in the Red Sea, yet most of all of that first generation of wilderness wanderers failed to trust God and did not enter the promised land. Now, if you take that wilderness language and apply it to the church, Jesus has inaugurated a new wilderness wandering for a new covenant people. We're in pilgrimage together who will be brought into his eternal rest. But some who are part of the visible collective of God's people will not enter that rest. And so because we haven't crossed the finish line yet, the author of Hebrews declares to us the urgency of continuing to fix our eyes on Jesus. If you're feeling a little bit of attention there, you should. And, and we'll unpack that further in the weeks to come. The, the book of Hebrews essentially presents us with warnings that remind us that the Christian life is not a life of easy believism. It's not, I prayed a prayer back in the day, I'm good to go, I'm just gonna coast until I die or Jesus returns. That's not the heartbeat of the book of Hebrews. The author of Hebrews is arguing that present tense perseverance in the faith authenticates one's past tense profession of faith. And so think of it this way, this word of exhortation, this 
this word of warning that is the book of Hebrews, is a word, one, not to look back in your wilderness pilgrimage as the church, and two, a word to look up to the one who is the wilderness traversing hope of the church, for the church, which leads me to the, the heart of what this book teaches about Jesus. There are a number of things. We're going to see it in just a moment as we open up the first four verses of this book of the Bible. A number of things that, that show us about the supremacy of Jesus Christ. We're going to see that, that Jesus is greater than the prophets and the angels, the, the human and divine messengers of God who have come before him. Jesus is greater than fallen man. Jesus is greater than Moses. Jesus is greater than Aaron. He's, he's the greater and ultimate high priest. He mediates a greater covenant. He offers a greater sacrifice himself in a greater tabernacle, heaven itself. But the ultimate thing that, that this book brings into view as it pertains to Jesus Christ is this. Jesus, as exalted high priest in heaven, lives to do something that he could not do while on earth. As high priest in heaven, he brings sons and daughters like you and me to glory and rest in the presence of God. As a professor of mine recently said, in a course on, on the theology of Hebrews. The central theological concern of the book of Hebrews is that we have in heaven a resurrected and high priest who ministers for the church in heavenly places. That's mind-blowing. I'm going to make sense of that in just a moment, but we should all be encouraged by that, comforted by that. This book, yes, it's meant to sober us, make no mistake about it, but at the same time, it's meant to bring us great comfort, encouragement, and joy. And so my hope is that as a result of this series for the next eight months, whatever it is that we're going through this, that you become more and more mesmerized by this Jesus. And so with that being said, here we go. If you have a Bible, you can open up to Hebrews chapter 1, obviously chapter 1, we're starting a new series. First four verses is where we'll be this morning. If you don't have a Bible, you can grab one underneath one of the seats in the row in front of you um, and open up to this morning's passage. If you don't own a Bible or the translation that you have is difficult to follow, please take that Bible as the churches give to you. Let me just throw the entire passage up on the screen, read it in its entirety, and then we'll pray and we'll jump in. Beginning in verse 1 of Hebrews chapter 1, says this, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Let's pray. God, what a glorious set of verses. Arguably the most power-packed four consecutive verses in all of the Bible. Tell us so much about who you are, Jesus, what you've done in creation, what you've done in your work of redemption, the beauty that you've revealed yourself to us, that we can know you, we can know the one who made all of this, the one who holds stars in the sky, the one who would spill his blood for us. Would you, Holy Spirit, open our minds to see the beauty of the person and work of Jesus this morning? Through your word, would you open our hearts to receive all that you have for us? 
Would you help us to see our unique need for the person and work of Jesus as revealed in these verses as we leave this place this morning? And and would you use the connecting of those dots to help us breathe the air of the gospel more and more as we scatter from this building week in and week out? God, would you move in a mighty way for the sake of your glory and the joy of your people? It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. All right, here we go. Verse 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. The the author starts off by contrasting two ages that that he's going to continue to contrast throughout this entire letter. The first age referred to as long ago, verse 1. The second age referred to as in these last days, verse 2. In both of these ages, the thing that matters most to mankind is that God spoke. If God doesn't speak, you and I, we're in real trouble. Without divine revelation, we have nothing more than human speculation as it pertains to who God is and whether or not we can know him. Particularly as it pertains to redemptive history, God must speak. What the author of Hebrews declares from the start is that the God of Christianity is a God who speaks. That's good news. We could celebrate that and just leave right now and be happy about the fact that God speaks to human beings like you and me. And and he's not so much talking about general revelation, nature, the cosmos, etc. Rather, he's talking about special revelation, the revelation of Jesus Christ and his work of redemption for sinners. And so you have these, these two stages of redemption, one corresponding to the Old Testament, the other corresponding to the New. I just did like a karate kid wax on, wax off. That was weird. It's not that, that as redemptive history unfolds, God's revelation becomes progressively truer or more mature. It's that there's this progression from promise to fulfillment. That's what we're going to see as we work our way through this book of the Bible. Promise to fulfillment, promise to fulfillment. In, in the age referred to as long ago, God spoke in a number of ways. You can see that if you go back and read the Old Testament. He spoke in acts of mercy and judgment, explaining the meaning of those acts through the prophets. He spoke in a storm to Moses on one occasion, in a burning bush on another occasion. He spoke in a still small voice to Elijah. He spoke in dreams to Daniel, and on and on we could go. But But all of these moments of divine revelation didn't communicate everything that God had to say in his fullness. In these last days, verse 2, God has said everything that he needs to say. In these last days, it's not so much a declaration that the end is drawing near as it is a declaration that Jesus is the final revelation of God. That Jesus is God's ultimate and final message to mankind. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1.20, all the promises of God find their yes in him, in Jesus. That the Old Testament is, is all about the foreshadowing of the coming hero promised in Genesis 3. The one who would slay the darkened dragons of Satan, sin, and death, as I say so often. So that when the promised hero shows up and saves the princess, there's nothing more to tell. The story has been told. It's why we say that the New Testament is not to be added to. It's the declaration of the person and work of Jesus, who is God's final revelation. God has spoken. Jesus Christ is the revealing of God to a world filled with people who are searching for God. That's what these first couple verses declare. He has spoken to us. 66 books written over the course of roughly 2,000 years by roughly 40 human authors. The Bible was written by kings, peasants, philosophers, fishermen, 
doctors and scholars, to name a few, written in two main languages, Hebrew and Greek with a little Aramaic sprinkled in for good measure, made up of historical narratives, poetry, song, letters, sermons, architectural specifications, which I know you read in your quiet time this morning, population statistics, genealogies, and on and on and on and on and on we could go. And yet, this gloriously diverse book tells one overarching story of redemption with Jesus as the hero of the whole thing, binding it all together. It's unbelievable. We don't have to guess while we're here. We don't have to guess as to whether or not there's something or someone bigger than us out there. We can know. And so the author of Hebrews goes on to tell us about this Jesus who is God's final revelation. The first few verses of the book of Hebrews, they, they really present us with a Christology 101 session. If, you, if you've ever thought, man, I'd love to sit in on a seminary class. Most of you probably haven't thought that, but, but you kind of get to do that this morning. You kind of get an intro to Christology, the person and work of Jesus. You, you immediately encounter a number of descriptors of this son by whom God has spoken, this hero who's come to rescue his people. In these last days, God has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, that heaven and earth, even the world to come, belong to Jesus. They are his inheritance. How do you explain that? Jesus has got to be more than just a good teacher. He's got to be more than some pithy philosopher throwing out fortune cookie statements on a hillside to the masses. I'm so excited I can't talk. I'm going like 80 miles an hour here. Man, I love this book of the Bible. Immediately, we're we're talking about Jesus' rightful inheritance as our sin-conquering, death-conquering, Satan-conquering, triumphant king. But the author of Hebrews doesn't just want us to know about Jesus' work of redemption. He wants us to trace the supremacy of Christ further back than the manger scene in Bethlehem, which is why he goes on to say, through whom also he created the world. Here you have the doctrine of Jesus' preexistence, his eternal deity, that Jesus existed long before the manger scene in Bethlehem. He's eternal. He's timeless. He's self-existent, self-sufficient, dependent upon nothing, involved in this intra-Trinitarian dance with God the Father and God the Spirit since before time began. As John says in chapter 1 of his gospel account, in the beginning was the word Jesus And the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Or as Paul says in Colossians 1, verse 16, For by him all things were created, by Jesus, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. That Jesus is the Father's agent of Uh, in the work of creation. He created all of this. When you look around, time, space, matter, motion, Jesus created it all. He goes on to say in verse three, he is the radiance of the glory of God. I love this. This idea of radiance, it goes back to an Old Testament concept, something that was referred to as the Shekinah glory. The Shekinah glory, it was a visible glory um, that revealed the splendor and majesty of God. We see it in the Exodus as well as the dedication of Solomon's temple. And here the author of Hebrews is saying that Jesus Christ himself is the Shekinah glory of God, the visible revelation of God's splendor and majesty. That when you look at Jesus, you're looking at the glory of God. 
Similar to how uh, we know the sun by virtue of its light and heat. We know the glory of God by virtue of Jesus' embodiment and radiance of that glory. As F.F. Bruce says in his commentary, Just as the radiance of the sun reaches this earth, so in Christ the glorious light of God shines into the hearts of men and women. Or as the Nicene Creed puts it, Jesus is light from light, true God from God. He is the radiance of the glory of God. And he goes on to say in verse 3 of Hebrews 1, he's the exact imprint of God's nature. The the Greek word for imprint there carries with it this, this word picture of an imprint made by a stamp, an exact representation of God's being and nature, possessing all the characteristics, all of the attributes, all of the qualities of God. And so a simple way to say it is that Jesus is God made visible. I don't know if you've ever thought about this when you open up the gospel accounts of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But if you want to know how God thinks, look at how Jesus thinks in the gospels. If you want to know how God feels, look at how Jesus feels in the gospels. If you want to know how God acts, look at Jesus acting in the gospels. If you want to know how God relates to human beings like you and me, look at Jesus relating to human beings in the gospels. That verse, verse 3, it should revolutionize the way we read the Bible, particularly the gospel accounts of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. If you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. He goes on to say, and this Jesus upholds the universe by the word of his power, that he's not the God of deism who wound up the clock of human history and then checked out on his creation. God the Son has an ongoing role in governing the universe, in keeping the universe from falling apart. Were it not for Jesus, cosmos would go to chaos. Paul says it this way in Colossians 1.17, and he, Jesus, is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And so everything thus far helps us to understand how Jesus is greater than the prophets. He's the son of God. He's God in the flesh. He created the prophets. He sustained the very life of each and every one of the prophets that you read about in the Old Testament. The prophets declared, thus says the Lord. Jesus shows up on the scene and says, truly, truly, I say to you. In other words, I am the Lord. Goes on to say, and after making purification for sins. Let me just stop there. That little phrase, it's like a stoplight in a small rural town. You blink and you miss it. It's the one descriptor of God the Son having to do with his humanity in these first four verses. It's the first indication we get of of the priestly nature of Jesus' redemptive work on our behalf. The author of Hebrews, he's going to focus a lot on the priestly work of Jesus. You'll see that if you stick around for the entirety of this series. Far more than than all the other descriptors you see in these verses, he's going to focus in on that priestly work of Jesus Christ. Major theme of the book, Jesus the ultimate high priest who makes purification for sins through the sacrifice of himself on our behalf. And so I'm not gonna get into that too much because we're gonna get into that heavily when we get to chapters nine and 10 down the road. He goes on to say, after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. There's already a hint of what's to come here. There were no chairs in the Old Testament temple because an Old Testament priest's work was never done. There was always another sacrifice to be made. Just go read the Old Testament. It's rated R, just so, just so you know, if you didn't know that. There's so much bloodshed that it makes a Quentin Tarantino film look nonviolent. It's that bad. 
Sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice. It's bloody. The priest's work was never done. No sitting on the job. Then along comes Jesus putting an end to the bloodshed through the shedding of his own blood on our behalf. It's what theologians refer to as the death of death in the death of Christ. This phrase, it looks ahead to Hebrews 10, which says this, verses 11 through 13. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Jesus had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. The the author of Hebrews telling us that Jesus sat down at the right hand of God is a declarative, it is finished. He's coming behind Jesus' words from the cross, and he's affirming that to be true. It's pretty incredible. In just a few short verses, what you encounter here. The author of Hebrews is essentially declaring Jesus to be the perfect prophet, priest, and king, the fulfillment of all three Old Testament offices. He's the prophet by whom God has spoken his final word. He's the priest who has offered the once-for-all sacrifice to cleanse us from sin. And he's the king who's seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. Let me just say this. If this book of the Bible doesn't cause you to marvel at Jesus Christ, I have nothing else for you. Nothing. As if everything thus far were not glorious enough, he goes on to declare the supremacy of Christ over angels. Verse 4, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. As the the eternal son of God, the one who was around before time began, Jesus is superior to the angels in his very divine being. As creator, the one who made all things and sustains all things, Jesus is superior to the angels in that he created every one of them and they still find their being because he upholds their existence. As redeemer, Jesus is superior to the angels in that he did what they could never do. He died in the place of sinners and rose triumphant from the grave, inheriting the name of the risen son of God. He's not just the eternal son of God, but the risen son of God. That's the name he has inherited, which is more excellent than the angels' names. Next week, we'll, we'll dive into verses 5 through 14, which unpack this incredible contrast between Jesus and the angels in much greater detail. But, but let me just let me do this, because I don't, I don't want to get high up in the clouds with respect to Christology and theology and just leave it there, because I would assume that there's probably a question running through some people's minds in this auditorium this morning, namely this. You might be thinking, this is great and all, but, but what's the significance of These four verses in my life, ground this for me in my very life. As I leave this place, why does this matter for me? Well, think about it this way. If you come back to this picture of the church as a pilgrim people in a wilderness seeking to enter Sabbath rest, that's who we are. As we wander in the wilderness on our pilgrimage in life, fighting the good fight of faith, All of these descriptors of Jesus bring us hope in unique ways. Think about this, Jesus as heir. When you consider that Jesus is the heir of all things, verse two, you should be incredibly encouraged in a couple different ways. One, you are his inheritance. You are his treasure, Christian. Ephesians 1.18 puts it this way. Paul says that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, What are the riches of his, Jesus' glorious inheritance in the saints? 
That's unbelievable. Jesus is heir to all of the universe, and yet you are his most prized possession. You are his treasure. You're more valuable than the cosmos to Jesus. He spilled his blood for you. Some of us need to hear that this morning. Some of us struggle to believe that God could actually love us. And so to hear that he is the heir of all things and that you are his most prized possession might be the most glorious way that you could preach the gospel to yourself as you leave this place this morning. Not only are you his inheritance, but you're also a co-heir with Jesus. Paul says in Romans 8, verses 16 and 17, the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. By our union with Jesus, the riches of Christ are made our riches. I can't make sense of that. Don't ask me to. You can go grab some systematic theology books if you want to this week and try to make sense of that. I've read a number of them and I still don't get it, but it's amazing. What about Jesus as creator? Well, think about this. Jesus as creator fashioned the universe without pre-existing matter. Again, something we cannot wrap our minds around. If he can do that, he can take any person in this room and make him or her a new creation. If you're a follower of Jesus, that's exactly what you are. Paul says it this way, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. That some of us in this room need to hear that we're not who we once were. We've been made new in Christ, and we're not who we're going to be. God continues to conform us into the image of the Son, according to Romans 8. That's good news. If you feel frustrated in your journey of sanctification as a Christian, be encouraged that the one who fashioned the stars is, is conforming you into the image of the Son of God. What about Jesus as sustainer? Well, Jesus as sustainer, according to the author of Hebrews, holds the universe in place by the word of his power. If he can do that, he can certainly hold us up in our darkest nights of the soul. This is the same Jesus who commands the stars to hang like stage lighting from the cosmos. By his very word, in the midst of your struggles, Christian, Jesus is sufficient to hold you up. Some of us need to hear that this morning. Some of you are going through a dark season of life. You need to be encouraged and know that, that the same one who holds stars in the sky is capable of holding you up through anything that you go through in life. What about Jesus as radiance and imprint? Jesus as the radiance of God and the imprint of his nature, verse 3, makes God visible to us. You can know God. You can know how God thinks. You can know how God feels. You can know how God acts. You're not left in the dark. You don't have to walk out of here living a life of functional agnosticism. Maybe we can know. Maybe we can't. You can know. It's been revealed in the person and work of Jesus Christ. What about Jesus as priest and king? Well, we know that Jesus, in making purification for sins, has done what we can never do. We don't have to, nor could we, if we tried, make atonement for our sins. But we don't have to claw our way to God. 
We don't have to attempt to to make ourselves clean before God. Jesus is the perfect sacrifice who paid for our sins with his blood so that we might be made clean. If you're a Christian, some of us need to hear this more than anything this morning. You're forgiven. You're made clean. You've been declared clean. If you're in Christ, you're cleansed from the defilement of sin. When the father looks at you, he sees a beloved son or daughter with whom he's well pleased. Not because you pleased him, but because Jesus has pleased him on your behalf. That's good news. We don't have to make atonement for our sins. And oh, how often we try through acts of self-righteousness and acts of self-loathing. To the self-righteous, you're so bad that Jesus had to die for you. To the self-loathing, you're so loved that he was glad to do it. Jesus sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He sat down, indicating that he meant it when he said, it is finished. His sacrifice is sufficient. There's nothing that you have done that would cause God to love you less. There's nothing you could do that would cause God to love you more. You're loved perfectly, a beloved son or daughter of God, because of who Jesus is and what he's done for you. And not only is his priesthood about his sacrifice on our behalf, it's also, and this might be the most mind-blowing thing for me personally, it's also about his intercession. That Jesus, think about this, Jesus is praying for you. Romans chapter 8, verse 34. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God. There's our language from Hebrews 1. Who indeed is interceding for us. You ever wondered if people are praying for you? Jesus Christ is praying for you. Jesus Christ, the second person of the Godhead, the one who right now is keeping the cosmos from turning into chaos, prays for you, intercedes for you on your behalf to God the Father. That's unbelievable. We could just drop the mic right now and call it a day. Jesus, as high priest of heaven, lives to do something that he could not do while on earth. As high priest in heaven, he brings sons and daughters like you and me to glory and rest in the presence of God. He has a heavenly ministry on your behalf as the church. It's a beautiful thing. We're going to unpack that for months to come in all of its intricacies. But let me just leave us with this this morning. A couple of questions. Number one. Do you know this Jesus, this pre-existent eternal son of God who created the universe and upholds it by the word of his power, who willingly became a character in his own story in order to rescue the very ones who rebelled against him, the one who lived the life that you and I could never live, a perfect sinless life, the one who died the death that you and I deserved to die. Our sins were put upon him and he was punished in our place, the one who rose from the grave triumphant and has been exalted to the right hand of the majesty on high. Do you know this Jesus? If you're not a Christian, my prayer is that today would be the day that you fall at his feet and marvel at him as both savior and king. And we'll get into it next week. The two can't be divorced from one another. You can't declare Jesus as your savior and not declare him as your king. I'll unpack that more next week. That's just a cliffhanger to be continued. But let me throw out a second question for us this morning. If you are a Christian, is this Jesus looming larger in your life? In the Chronicles of Narnia, shocked, I know, right? Lucy has this encounter with Aslan, the Christ figure in Lewis's Chronicles, and, and she, 
In this encounter, she runs up to the great lion, burying her face in his soft, bushy mane, and Aslan rolls over in such a way that that she falls in between his front two paws, and and he leans forward and touches her nose with his tongue, and, and she looks up and stares into his face, and then they have this dialogue. Welcome, child, he said. Aslan, said Lucy, you're bigger. That is because you're older, little one, answered he. Not... Not because you are? I am not, but every year you grow, you will find me bigger. Let me say it this way. The Christian life is a life in which we become more and more mesmerized by this Jesus. A life in which over the years, we we find ourselves declaring like Lucy, you're bigger. To which Jesus responds, no, I'm not. But the fact that you think I am is a sign that you're growing by my grace. Is this Jesus looming larger in your life? Do you find him to be more mesmerizing than the day you first met him? If not, please believe me when I say that this is the church for you. The book of Hebrews is for you as well. And so I implore you to stick around. For the next several months, we're going to come face to face with the supremacy of Jesus Christ in a number of ways. And it's going to be quite a ride. It's going to be amazing.